together. Happy Thanksgiving to all that uh, celebrated. Hope it was a good one. Just wanted to know one thing that's going to start changing next Sunday. Uh, we've been parking, uh, our overflow parking has been across the street since the beginning of our worship services here in this building some five, six years ago. Uh, we've always noted that it's a little dangerous, you know, with kids having to cross the street on a busy street. Starting next week, we've uh, signed a contract with the building to the west of us and using their parking space so that we're not having to cross the street. But December will be a month of transition. So if you park there next week, none of the deacons will come and get you uh, or, you know, get out to get you. But we'll have December to be sort of a transition month. But starting in January, uh, we can only park in the building to the west of us. So that's the building that's closer to Craig, Craig Road. And then, but in December, you can use both. But start getting the habit of using the building next to us. It's a lot safer, and we're thankful for the partnership we could have with the owner, Tom, there. Um, with that said, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 38. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, you can use the Bible that's provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. And if you're using one of those, turn to page 855. 855. And uh, we're going to be looking at this morning, or starting a series actually, called Revisionist Christmas. And what we're going to do is sort of re-examine re or look back in a fresh way the story of Christmas, especially in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts actually is by Malcolm Gladwell, and I've mentioned him before during our First Samuel series. But he has a podcast called Revisionist History. And the premise of his podcast is to re-examine stories, people, songs, um, of how things actually went down. Did it go down the way it was supposed to, or was it a little different? And I think even with the Christmas story, when we look at the Gospels, we've heard it so many times maybe through the actual Bible, but also through children's books or children's stories, that we can sometimes think that what we know happened when it didn't, or vice versa. And we want to be able to spend the next four weeks looking at the Advent story or the Christmas story and re-examining what happened and what's the significance of Jesus' birth through these different characters that we're going to look at. So today, we're going to look at Mary. Next week, we're going to look at um, the innkeeper or the inn, right? And Luke accounts, we'll see in chapter 2 or at the end of chapter 1, that there was no place for them in the, uh, no place for them in the inn. The following week, we'll look at the shepherds. And then the last week, right before Christmas, we'll look at the wise men. Or sometimes we note that there's three wise men. Was there or was there not? And so we're going to be able to kind of do this revisionist Christmas and look at these different stories with fresh eyes and fresh ears. So let me uh, read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Follow along with me. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks for this Advent season, this opportunity to practice the rhythms of what has been happening for centuries, to be able to wait upon you and to anticipate the light that has entered our world and that will come again. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help fashion our hearts, whether we're followers, followers of Jesus or not, that you might give us ears to hear, eyes to see, so, Lord, we might leave here changed, changed and transformed because of the gospel alone. Do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at the story of Mary this morning, I think the church has had a hard time figuring out what to do with Mary. On the one hand, you have the Catholic Church that has held her in high regard and in high esteem, right? She was not just subject to sin in her life, that she was sinless and blameless, but there's this thing called the assumption of Mary, which was that she was assumed into heaven and never died, and that she was crowned the queen of heaven and earth. And though the church would always say that they don't worship her as they worship God, there is this high honor that they give her. This high honor that even they pray that she would give them mercy and that they pray through her to Jesus. Mary who's full of grace. Now there's some reason for that. We see that as we've read this passage twice. Twice in this passage, we see how Mary is called the favored one. As you translate, sometimes they'll read the virgin birth as one of high moral esteem. Now, while the Catholic Church holds her to this very high esteem and high honor, on the other hand, with the Reformation and with Protestants, we've gone to the other extreme. Due to the fear of excessive devotion, the only time we actually even talk or mention Mary is during Advent or when we confess the Apostles' Creed and we give her a lack of honor or any sort of, um, any sort of talk or sermons given. Additionally, when you think about the nativity scene, it's interesting. I think a lot of times we look at Mary and Joseph and the baby and we go, what a beautiful picture, what an honor and a, what a wonderful life that Mary lived. Now, is that true as we think about Mary and her story in the scriptures that are shown or told? So what are we to actually do with Mary? 
How are we to view her and why does it even matter? How does what we learn about Mary from culture and tradition and books differ from what we've just read here in Scripture? More importantly, how does this actually impact us who follow Jesus? Or maybe if you're seeking and interested in the Christian faith, what does Mary, the mother of Jesus, tell us about her son that she gives birth to? These are the questions we want to answer this morning. And I want to do this in three ways. We want to look at Mary's trouble, Gabriel's announcement, and then lastly, our response. So let's first look at Mary's trouble this morning. The reason I say Mary's trouble is because when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, what do we read in verse 29? It says that Mary is greatly troubled and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Not not that she was just troubled, but she was greatly troubled. She was disturbed and later we read that she was afraid. It wasn't just because of the angel being afraid, but she was greatly troubled by what announcement that Gabriel gives to her. Now, we actually have to give some attention to Mary and the predicament that she finds herself in in order to understand the trouble that she experiences. Now, there is no doubt that Mary would have been the most unlikely person for Gabriel to come to to give her this announcement. In verses 26 and 27, we get this sort of background information of Mary and why Gabriel comes. Now, the reason that's given isn't just for the purposes of here of finding out why she's troubled, but also think about Luke. He's a doctor, a physician. Facts matter to him. And so for this virgin birth to happen, this was important information for eyewitnesses to be able to go and find out, could this truly, truly happen? Could this miracle actually take place? And so Luke gives all of these details and facts to be able to tell us, yes, you can actually go to Mary. You, should, you can actually go to her town and talk to her neighbors and her relatives and find out whether this was true or not. But here we also find out why she's so greatly troubled. First, look at what we see in verses 26. She's, she is from Nazareth. Now that matters. Because when Nathanael, the disciple of Jesus, one of the disciples, is called by Jesus to follow him, Nathanael says this crazy claim and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Meaning like nothing good actually comes out of Nazareth. It's this tiny little little town in the middle of nowhere. And here, this is where Mary resides. Now, I've shared this story before, but when I went to London in 2010 for a missions trip, I ran into these Korean missionaries visiting London as well. And since I was Korean, we immediately connected and they asked me, oh, where are you from, right? You always ask. And I told them I'm from St. Louis. And they're like, where's St. Louis? What good can come from St. Louis? Can anything good come from St. Louis? Is pretty much what they were saying. Where is St. Louis? We don't know. And I basically realized what I need to tell people is, oh, I live in a town five hours from Chicago. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. This is where, Na- where Mary is from. From this little town in the middle of nowhere called Nazareth. But second, what, would, what do we see Luke describe her as? She's a virgin and betrothed. Now, we have to understand the cultural background of a betrothal. But what that meant was that there were two phases for a marriage. You had a betrothal 
and then you had your marriage. And it's, it works similarly to what we have in our culture, right? You have your engagement period, and then you have when you get married. But the difference with the betrothal was that legally, it was binding. The culture and the people and legally saw you as a married couple. But you lived in two separate houses, you still did not live together, and you, were, you did not practice any sort of sexual intimacy. And so when Mary gets this news, she's a virgin. And she's supposed to be not sexually active, and yet she has a baby in her womb. This was the worst thing that she could ever hear. And that's why, in one sense, she is greatly troubled. And as one commentator or one pastor who also wrote uh, commentaries, Ken Hughes, this is how he describes Mary. Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. So when you put the facts together, Mary is among the lowly, very young in the people's eyes. When you were betrothed, you were about 12 or 13. You were my daughter's age, Renee, who is 12 years old. And she just got the news that she is pregnant. So she's likely poor, uneducated, living in a small country far from the center of power like Jerusalem. And she was a female, a culture that discounted women. She was insignificant from any culture's perspective. Not only her plight, but think about the uncertainty that she experienced. How would her town respond? How would her family and friends respond when they feared God and knew the Old Testament and were faithful to it? How would Joseph respond? Right? This betrothal was legally binding. And the only way you could actually, what, the only option Joseph had was to divorce her. And in Matthew's account, in his gospel, that's what he intends to do. When the angel comes and tells him of this news that Mary is pregnant with baby, Joseph is intent on doing a secret divorce, to sign secret divorce papers so that Mary wouldn't be shamed. She's going to experience ridicule, hatred, suffering, scorn, shame from everyone around her. This was marital suicide. And that is why Mary is troubled. There's so much anxiety, so much stress, so much uncertainty and questions and doubts that are filling her heart and her mind. So why is she favored? She is greeted as, oh, favored one, the God who favors her. How can that be when she is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere? Well, the answer is here in Gabriel's announcement. My second point here is that we have to see Gabriel's announcement. In verses 30 through 37, we get his great announcement of this Jesus that she is conceiving. In verse, in verse, start in verse 30, what does Gabriel say to Mary? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary's like, well, how can this be? Like, how am I going to conceive? I'm a virgin. And what does, what does the angel say? Starting in verse 30, um, where am I? 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And that's John the Baptist. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Now, I want to just break this down into four parts of what the significance of this is. First, what does, what does Gabriel say? He says, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus was a common name in that culture. Why? Because it meant God saves. The Lord is salvation. Yeshua comes from Joshua in the Old Testament. This word was important for God's people, that God saves his people. And so this name was somewhat common or common, but then what does he say next? He says, he will be great. That title, great, was only attributed to God in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. God's wisdom is great. God's works are great. God's power is great. God's mercy is great. And so what Gabriel is saying is that this child is not only named Jesus, but he is the Son of God, a child of God. And then he makes it even more clear by saying he is the son of the Most High. This title was only used to praise God alone. David used it always, King David. And it was a common refrain that he would use in his psalms when he wrote the songs. But then he ends it by saying this word, throne of his father David. Now we've been in the book of 1 Samuel, right? And every single week you've heard John, myself, Zach, talk about how Jesus comes through the line of David and his rule will, or his reign will rule forever. There will be no end and it will be established forever. Now think about this. These four things that Gabriel announces, the people of God hear that and their ears perk up. Why? Because they're wondering and asking themselves, is this the one? Is this child the one? If he's coming from the house of David, this Son is going to be the king. Son of the Most High. Great. His name is Jesus. Their hearts and their minds and their hopes are all wanting this to be the Messiah, the Anointed One, Christ. Think about when, for us kids or even for adults, when you get a present that's under the tree and you know what you've been hoping for, you've told your wife or your spouse, you've told your parents, you've even written little wish lists to Santa Claus, and you see, that you see that present wrapped up, you look at the size of it, you see the shape of it, you shake it and it sounds like it, what must it be? It must be the present that you've been wanting. That's kind of like what we see here in Gabriel's announcement. The size, the, the sound, the shape, this all must point to Jesus, the son of David, the king that will reign and deliver God's people. And Mary must be thinking the same. 
Could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah where all of their dreams and hopes are finally answered in this son? Everything that they've been longing for. Is this the one? And of course we know that he is the one. Everything from Genesis to the prophets points to this one and he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of their hopes and dreams. He is their savior. He is their king. And it's only now because of who this child is that will be conceived that Mary is the favored one. She's not favored because of anything that she has done, but because of the child that is in her womb. It's because she is someone of lowly status whom God has chosen out of his own free grace to raise up that she might play a central role in God's redemptive plans for the world. In other words, what we see here is that Mary is a recipient of God's grace, not the repository of God's grace, as one scholar says. She's the object of grace, not the source of grace. The stress here is not is on God's choice, God's free grace and his prerogative rather than any human adequacy. God has graciously chosen Mary to accomplish this one singular important task in the world. And she is in need of a savior and need of forgiveness just like you and me. In the Magnificat that she sings after this, what does she say? Right away she says, my heart rejoices in God, my Savior. She recognizes her need for her Savior. And it's not because she's sinless, but it's only because of God's favor, God's grace upon her. When angel says, oh favored one, that's a passive participle. It's nothing that she has done. It's been done to her. God has favored her out of his own will and desire. And this child is the one that is full of grace. You see, she's favored because of Christ, of the one who has come into the world, the light of the world, into our darkness. So then what is our response as we close this morning? Just two things I think that are important for us to reflect on as we begin this Advent season. First, do you believe that nothing is truly impossible for God? Do you believe in your heart this morning that nothing is impossible for God? That's what the angel said. Through a virgin birth, through the Holy Spirit's conceiving, he says nothing is impossible. The Holy Spirit that overshadowed the waters during creation in Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit that overshadowed the tabernacle during the Exodus in showing God's glory. And the Spirit of God that overshadows Mary as it's described. And the one, the Spirit that overshadows Jesus' ministry from his life to his suffering to his death and resurrection and his ascension. Do we believe in the Spirit of God that truly nothing is impossible? I know for many of us, we feel heavy in our hearts because we feel like there are things that are impossible. Maybe it's impossible families that are broken. 
impossible physical or financial hardship in your life right now, impossible sicknesses, impossible sins that are too great to be forgiven, impossible trauma that is overwhelming you, impossible bosses to please, impossible grief that seems unending. But in the what seems impossible, do we believe that nothing is impossible for God? Phil Riken, president of a college up in Chicago, said this, there's no sin he cannot forgive, no relationship he cannot reconcile, no problem he cannot resolve, no need he cannot meet, no ministry he cannot bless, no grief he cannot comfort, no life he cannot reclaim, no sinner he cannot save. The God of the virgin birth is the God who makes all things possible. In this Advent season, when things are feel and seem so impossible, do you believe in the words of God through the angel that says nothing is too impossible for God? Circumstances might not change. Mary's plight never changed. That sword pierced her soul. She was a mother who grieved and saw her son suffer and die. She experienced so much ridicule and, and shame when Jesus came into her town saying, is that the mother of Jesus, the carpenter's son? Is that Mary's son? She experienced so much agony and pain, but she realized that this was the Messiah and there was comfort, there was hope. There was joy even in the midst of the hardship that she experienced in her life. Can we hold on to that kind of hope during this Advent season? But secondly, where is God calling us to be a servant of the Lord? Mary, with this amazing faith and obedience, what is her response knowing the plight that she's going to experience for the rest of her life? She says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. That word behold, scholars say, doesn't express surprise that many times the word behold indicates, but it's one of submission of herself to God's will. It's what Abraham said when he said, behold, here I am when God calls him. And in this response, what Mary is saying is that there is this humble, trusting submission to God in her response. It wasn't just obedience, her amazing obedience, but it was this amazing faith that Mary displayed. How was she able to submit to God's will in her life? It was entrusting that this one, this Savior, was the hope for not only her, but for the world. And through a lifetime of suffering as a servant of the Lord, she was able to be a blessing. She experienced so much loneliness as Jesus hung on the cross. She was alone. And yet she continued to be a servant of the Lord and a blessing. Now what I want to ask us this morning is how in the midst of lowliness, hardship, loneliness, can we still be a servant of the Lord and being a blessing to others? Maybe it's a schoolmate, a friend at school who's experiencing loneliness, who is a nobody in a, nobody, in a nowhere town, in the middle of nowhere. Maybe it's a coworker, a neighbor, a friend. Who are those people in your life where you can be a servant of the Lord to bless and care for and meet their needs during this Advent season? 
You see, she trusted God and believed and followed him all the days of her life. As I close, I want to share this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And as we think about the loneliness of Mary and maybe the, the impossible situations that we experience, how can we celebrate even during this Advent season? Well, this is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. You see, the greater has come in Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of the Most High, and He is coming again. Put your faith in Him this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the hope that comes in Christ. That he is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of the Most High. And it's through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension that we can experience the deep comfort that comes in Christ alone. Lord, help us to set our eyes on you, to believe that nothing is impossible for you. So, Lord, I pray that even here as we come to the table now, Lord, strengthen our hearts. Remind us that we are favored, not because of what we've done or anything that we can do, but because of Jesus who sets his eyes and, and delights in us. Lord, help us to look to you now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.